I felt that in my bones. I feel like it really my like sums up like a hey, <laughs> What did you say? Oscoxa. <laughs> what? <laughs> She's been very uh, obsessed with that bone. That's a good bone. Sorry. That's a good bone. <laughs> Hi, my name is Naomi Garo, and I'm a social major and anthropology minor. Hello, my name is Farah Alfaraj. I'm a history major and anthropology minor. My name is Daniel Galvitt. I'm a biology major and anthropology minor. I'm Melissa Trudeau. I'm a biology major and anthropology minor. And this is Anthrophiles. Yay! <laughs> okay, so I have a question. Does any one of you speak a language? I, would I speak English, so. yeah. <laughs> I mean, more than one language. Oh, I would no. hope so. Is anyone bilingual? No. Polyglot? I am. Fair In enough. my dreams. In um, your dreams? I am. I am, like, what? Quadrilingual? Quadrilingual? I, I got Ooh. a couple languages. Like, what kind languages. of languages do you speak? Well, obviously English, mm-hmm. um, but that was my second language. My first language was Arabic, and then I learned sign language. And I can pretty much understand, read, and write Spanish, but I refuse to speak it because I feel like my accent is really stupid and I don't want to. still very impressive. Yeah, yeah, that's incredible. Anyways, that's what about crazy. you, Naomi? Me? Oh, boy. Where so, to start? <laughs> where to start? So I know English, very on par, but I've been learning Korean for... Mm. I think eight years for a while and I know some Spanish because colonization with the Philippines and oh yeah <laughs> I learned Chinese with Melissa so I know some Chinese Ooh. my Chinese name is Guomin and Melissa's name was Lisha <laughs> yeah so the reason why I asked that question is because this episode is talking about linguistics because last episode we mentioned linguistics in the later in, in we mentioned about it in the previous episode where Melissa was hosting it but today I'm going to be hosting this episode and I'll be talking about revitalization of the Kodiak Alutic language so I'm going to preface this so language what do you think is the definition of language from your prior knowledge hmm. That's an interesting well, question. As yeah. Farah demonstrated, I was going to automatically say a language is something that's spoken, but you know she's uh, well versed in sign language, so it's not necessarily a, a vocal thing. Yeah. But it's it's a form of communication. Yeah, I was mm-hmm. going to say it's just um, a system where mm-hmm. you communicate with people and you know like how to communicate with people. You have vocabulary mm-hmm. and the ability to point to something and be like, I can give that a word, put something in a structure. Mm-hmm. Structuralism to you guys. Wow. <laughs> yeah, but that's like what language is basically defined as. But did you know that there are thousands of languages spoken across the globe? However, in recent years, studies have shown a rapid decline in the number of languages. So a lot of linguistics predict that at least 60 or 90% of the languages spoken in the world may no longer exist in the next 100 years. Mm. Wow. So that is not surprising. And the problem is most of these languages that are mostly likely endangered or about to be extinct are indigenous languages, especially around in the, I think in North America specifically. So the one that I'm going to focus on is the Kodiak Alutic, which is located in Alaska, and they're speaking the Alutic language. So 
Um, there's two dialects that the Lutic language has. There's the Konyak Lutic and the, the Chugat Lutic. And they have different regions in the different peninsula in Alaska. And the one in um, the Kodiak Lutic is spoken on the Kodiak Archipelago in Alaska Peninsula. And it's a subdialect. So, dialects. It's a complicated <laughs> word. <laughs> because with dialects, they're. They're in a sense another language, but they have the same similarities as the spoken language that's common there. So I had prior ex- experience with dialects because was born in, my family's from the Philippines. My mom, my dad, my grandpa, my grandma, my relatives, they all spoke different dialects. No one could understand each other. Wow. Oh gosh. But dinner table it must have been fun time right yeah Yeah. it's fun time yeah i mean my brother he got like really confused with the language that he started speaking like gibberish because different dialects confused him alongside with english but yeah so it's a it's a sub dialect and it is spoken in that area but this dialect is spoken by the sunak tribe and they reside in that peninsula but even though there's some speakers, there's only a few residents, and those are only speaking fluently by the native elders there. So the native elders are the ones that are part of the indigenous tribe, and they're the ones that are pretty prominent, but like it's very hard to teach the language because when children are like learning languages, it's much easier because the way they process things is they're quick. But yeah. when you get older, as you get older, it becomes difficult to maintain the language. So, for example, Melissa, our Chinese class. Yeah. Do we remember? Do we remember anything? <laughs> I do. Yeah. You do? <laughs> like yeah. most of it, or no? I remember most, just because it was my second time learning it. Though, if it had been my first, I would not have remembered much. I only remember it a little bit, and like even like for me, like I've known Korean for like like almost a decade. I still don't remember everything. But it would have been different if I was speaking it when I was younger or if I was speaking Tagalog or another language when I was younger. So in a way, people are kind of worried, especially the native elders, because most of these are around their like 80s or 90s. So a lot of them have passed away during that time. And also it's very hard to speak, teach the language fluently to a specific group of people. So I'm so to understand like the decline of fluent speakers and like why that is very prominent on why there's a motivation to revitalize it, we need to like talk about the historical context of it and why it became kind of shamed. So during I think the during the like eighteen sixty nine and the nineteen sixties, assimilation boarding schools were being established across the United States. I think Farah could give some calling the historian on board yes um so boarding schools i mean it's not a surprise when you watch um like a whole group of people who are completely different from each other just kind of get pushed into categories being like okay you're native you speak a native tongue and we don't want that you we want you to be one of us um you can see that like across the u.s and in canada uh, nowadays you really hear about that in the news and how boarding schools and like their effects what that had on native communities during this time but most like importantly about that is just the idea of colonization and really like cultural and just like erasure in every aspect of the word because when you take someone and you 
strip them from their language, you strip them from their name, you strip them from their ancestors and their traditions and their culture, and you basically like make a whole generation that's lost and erase their history. And you can see that with um, even African slaves that were brought um, to work in the U.S. when they were like given new names, they were um, like forced to not use or talk in their mother tongue, which really leaves like huge psychological effects on native people and their history and their perceptions of themselves. So it's really just damaging yeah. <laughs> psychologically. I mean, there there's a video on um, where I got most of my research on is that um, they had like a documentary that they had and um, it was surrounded the Kodiak Galutic and so they were trying to find the process on how to teach um, how to teach the language to the community because it's dying. There's only a, like a, from what it says there was like 40 native speakers but it started to decline because of COVID-19. This was filmed like the documentary itself was filmed before but like a long like during the time of COVID happening. So a lot of the people or the native elders who spoke it fluently, like the population has dwindled and has decreased. So like what Farah mentioned, like how they were feeling shame um, in the video they met had, they interviewed one of the native elders and he was saying that like, you know, any of the children who spoke Alutic, they would be received, they received punishments if disobeyed. And it made them feel very like ashamed to speak the language and just like like, like to assimilate to the English language and distance themselves from their native identity. And that goes kind of both ways too. They can um, really like take up English and American identity and then be ashamed of their native um, like ancestry. But then they can also just hide themselves, um, not the children, but like elders they would like not want to be seen with their newly assimilated kids because they'll just be like you know we're we're bringing bringing shame upon the family because we're not like we can't speak english or whatever it is and actually i wanted to bring up another point about how a lot of these dead languages like quote unquote dead um the only remaining record of some of them is what we have written by colonizers and by imperial mm -hmm. like officers and everything like you don't have documentation of that other than like whatever people that are left um, who still speak it. So it's just a lot of these languages are truly dead as in like they really don't have, you don't have evidence, not evidence, but like you don't have any source to reteach it to a community, which mm. is. Okay, so like for many of like the dead languages, it's very difficult, especially since most of the languages are given to only one person and they're responsible in like making sure that it stays alive but then again like the process of like writing the language making an alphabet or recording it requires time so we don't know if the person that is the only fluent speaker is going to be able to record everything in a matter of this period of time because we don't know their age we don't know how long they're going to live so it's just like that's why a lot of languages die because it's just a matter of like people not really giving like any sort of attention towards that are trying to help mm -hmm. and i think really interesting as you were saying that i was thinking about the idea of like just because we can speak a language doesn't necessarily mean we understand it if that makes sense because yeah. i know um, my mother majored in english uh, in college 
and so she's big on like you know gra grammar topics and like you know syntax and things like that and she teaches Spanish too and uh, in in thinking back on my time in Spanish class you know we think about all like how to conjugate verbs and stuff like that but um, it takes a minute when like you're asked to conjugate say a verb in English you, you I, I was like I don't really know if I know how to do that and obviously it's really simple but I've I'm so used to just you know speaking English that I don't think about really how the language is structured so I think to assume that say in this example you're talking about like a hypothetical or even a real example of if there's only one person left who speaks this language that's at risk of going extinct you can't necessarily rely on that person because maybe even though they've grown up speaking it they don't have the capability, you know, teaching a language is difficult, so that maybe they don't have the capability of teaching it, you know, all the advanced topics within that language, or, you know, about, like, grammar and things like that, so, yeah, it's something just, I was thinking about as you were saying that, probably way more difficult than it would seem, it's not a matter of just, like, listening to them talk and mm -hmm. writing it down. I mean, like, coming from my experience, like, learning, like, learning Korean itself, is that, like, when I talk to my Korean teacher, it's just, whenever I try to translate it, it's more of like guessing. It's kind of like when I say like a sentence that's Korean, she asked me to translate it. A lot of the, you could say it gets lost in translation, like that type of idea. So it loses a lot of the meaning and a lot of like the cultural like context and impact that it has on the words. So like within that sense of like putting it solely on one person, it could result to a lot of things not being not having that cultural impact or influence in the meaning of it because we it, I think it should be like something of more of a community based where it's like more people who speak the language that could go back and forth on like the meaning of it because sometimes it might not be their actual meaning so actually building off of that and what Daniel said it's a lot of language isn't just about like grammar or I mean like it is you know like for functional reasons, you have to have like conjugations and grammar. But I think one thing that Daniel said that really um, gave me this thought is when you're talking, when you just speak, um, a lot of language and the meaning of language, we learned that like in college nowadays, like theory and concepts and like, what does this word really mean and how to use this word? And how does this string of words like change the meaning completely if they were like not together so I think even that like even that concept of just like you said in Korean it would be lost in translation because like I could be like I like running but in another language it would be like my passion is running and that changes mm -hmm. the com like the mm -hmm. definition right. and the meaning of that sentence completely yeah language is really complicated like there's connotations to words there's um, like figures of speech mm -hmm. And a lot of that might be lost if you just record like words and their direct translations to English. Because mm -hmm. if you're like, uh, what's an example of a figure of speech in it's raining English? Raining cats and dogs. Yeah, it's yeah. raining cats and dogs. If you say that, you would probably be more likely to translate that in another language to "it's raining really hard," mm -hmm. and you would lose the whole like imagery mm -hmm. of it raining so much. It's like there's cats and dogs falling from mm -hmm. the sky. Or better yet, if they do literally say it is raining outside cats and dogs you'd be yeah. like what the hell are you talking <laughs> about yeah no one would really understand like what you were getting at and i think and we kind of touched on it sorry did i cut you off no you're good okay. 
I think we sort of started touching on it when we were talking about the boarding schools. I imagine a lot of this has to do with like globalization, um, not just in terms of you know forced assimilation, but just the idea of like everyone, you know, what are the most common languages, right? You know, everyone's starting to speak more of the same, and so you're losing the the nuance of like these regional dialects or that are spoken in like really either remote areas or just uh, they have a, a, a very small limited distribution. Or in, in like Naomi's uh, case study here, it's just spoken spoken by a small number of people and a declining number of people so i mean i could also like bring an example is that like in the philippines there's multiple dialects but english is being taught more frequently it's taught in like elementary school high school it became their basically most primary language compared to like actual tagalog and um itself like kind of affected like me personally because um, even though like my parents speak tagalog or speak you know their native tongue in the filipino language that they have um they didn't really try to teach me um the native tongue because they were kind of scared that like that will not like that i would be confused on like the like the difference between tagalog and english and also it's just like a lot of like cultural things being like oh you'll be able to survive if you speak english so in that sense is that like I understand like how globalization, especially like in business related things like English, you have to be taught English, you have to be fluent in English. It's like a common language that like people suggest or like push more to speak than other languages. Adding on to that, I actually kind of have a similar experience, but almost like different. So in Saudi Arabia, um, Arabic is the like the primary language. However, English is bec- like rising up and it's more taught in like um, public schools and private schools more than ever. And I thought that was interesting that Naomi would bring that up because in my experience, I found that my parents and my family members, when they talk to their kids about learning English, they view it this way. They view it you have to learn English. It's like the first thing you need for a job. Like you can't get a job anywhere if you don't know how to speak English. And my cousins and they're like children. They'll be like, I don't want to speak English. Why do I speak English? I speak Arabic all the time. Like I don't need to talk to English. Uh, you know, kids. And so like their parents would literally have to sit them down and have like a really serious conversation being like you literally cannot move in the world if you don't know how to speak English. And I think that's really interesting to actually bring back to the topic of how native people and just people in general like the the standardization of the english language across the globe has just become so normal that we don't really think about it yeah i think it's it's really in some ways it's really great that we could like communicate with anybody around the world in theory if you know they knew how to speak english but like i was saying earlier at the same time you just lose a lot of cultural richness i think and you kind of just um sterilize the sort of language landscape i mean with the idea with like boarding schools and assimilation like going back to like the kodiak lutic um so after when the boarding schools were shutting down like around the 1960s um a lot of many like indigenous children they assimilated to the culture because of how they were forced to do it and many of them forgot how to speak their language but there's some um that were able to retain the language and like continue to speak it fluently and many of those those kids that were 
experiencing assimilation boarding schools are the native elders that are like trying to re like vitalize that language again and so um however though they like it's recorded that in 2012 there were 44 fluent speakers of this dialect but because of COVID-19 and you know a lot of them are older um it will the population will decrease more and also from health conditions so like this kind of like native speakers of the language could result in the extinction of the language but with that with the rising concerns of the Kodiak Alutic um the community actually um wanted to make um efforts to try to revive it and like increase the fluency of the language among the community so this goes to the idea of language planning so the community started the process of it to preserve the language and teach it to the future generation of speakers so how they did it is that at first like they did many types of like programs where they try to teach it but none of them were like as successful until they were able to teach a small group of like college students and um, they became like semi-fluent um, and they became the important group to be teaching the children um, in the next like next few years because um, throughout this entire time they have this sort of like an apprenticeship mentors relationship so one person who speaks who's semi-fluent um, is under the supervision of a native elder and they would bounce off back and forth different types of sentences different types of words so that they could have some sort of conversation to increase fluency so another thing that was important was documentation like what Farah said a lot of dead languages do not have documentation but um, what the Kodiak Alutic especially in the community what we're trying to do is um, document everything that they could do like having audios having written languages um, and so actually they have a orthogra- an orthographic book of the language that is published and they also have an Alutic language archive so I looked it up before trying to see what kind of stuff they had and so they basically had one word that they uh, have and they have an audio recording of the person speaking it so and they also have like with the COVID-19 happening they also had like YouTube uh, sessions online where they have episodes and they have like you know like when you teach a kid in preschool they're like apple apple but instead <laughs> it's with apple. a is for apple <laughs> but instead it's with an alutic word so that documentation was very helpful to in a sense preserve it but then again like there needed to be more help to how to like improve fluency among the community so one of the things that they thought of is creating a preschool but that required a lot of money because a lot of like with the logistics of it it required grants and so for a few years they were not able to get the grant till like i think 2019 and that in itself like launched the idea of teaching it to the younger kids so they would like try to teach like speech styles such as like rhythm and notation and um they would also like teach pronunciation syntax sentences structure and um also i think they would teach like different types of like linguistic terms like lexical morphemes which is um 
and associate them with um, English words. And also with like recent years, like there's workshops and like language houses, which I find really interesting. What is a language house? So in a language house, they would have like a group of people who are like semi-fluent and it's like a board, no, no, it's like a, like a housing where they have different people like live together and they would have one person who's like mostly fluent to have conversations with each other so like that's like when you're thrown in spain and you're like oh crap i I gotta learn spanish yeah yeah it's an immersion thing yeah yeah oh my god so like that that was very effective because it would uh help them with like sentence structure and like making conversations because you'd be forced to do it yeah your only way of communication which Mm -hmm. is because Pretty personally, cool. ever since like I've been learning a language, having conversations in that language is difficult. It's, yeah, it's, the best it's really way to the learn. only way, yeah. To yeah. it's <laughs> difficult and it's like it, it's it's struggling. But the fact that they're like having these programs, like workshops and language houses, shows that like there there's a lot of passion into trying to revive this language. Um, these language houses, they're so intriguing and interesting because it really shows something about us as humans and our need to communicate like we can't not talk to each other and so like when you force someone to be in a position where they have to talk to someone in a different language and they only know the basics of it like you'll figure it out eventually yeah Um, which like anthropologically speaking (laughs) it's highly sociological (laughs) (laughs) i had to throw it in there It would probably also help, too, like, with your fear of speaking Spanish out loud. If you had to speak Spanish out loud to someone, you would eventually get used to it. You'd probably overcome that fear because you'd be like, wait, I do actually know what I'm talking about. Yeah, it's or true. Or they correct you. Yeah. <laughs> you'd eventually learn. Actually, funny story. When I when I went to Guatemala and I had to, like, basically be forced to learn Spanish because I was like, they, they don't, they won't speak English to me. They know English. They just won't speak it to me. I'm like, I'm <laughs> You don't talk Don't do this to me. So like, I tried to like, you know, figure out bits and pieces here and there, um, and I was forced to have a conversation with their history teacher there because I wanted to talk to him about a history topic, mm-hmm. and he was like, "I'm not speaking to you in English." And I'm like, "You know what? Fair." <laughs> and so I sat there with like my dictionary, and I'm like, "I think this is the right word I'm using." Give me five minutes, so I through <laughs> <laughs> the pages. Yeah, it was basically like that. I'd be like, he, we're talking about the Gulf War for some reason. He brought it up, and we're talking about the Gulf War. And I'm like, yeah, so like, Gulf War. <laughs> like, m- talking with my hands, flipping through my, my dictionary, trying to find the words. And then when we understand each other, just be like, I get it. Do you get it? Do you <laughs> yeah. understand me? And it's like, it's it's really like a beautiful thing. So I kind of, like, I want to be thrown into one of those language houses. So the reason why there's a lot, the reason why there's like the community itself is so passionate in creating these projects, even though there's a lot of logistics such as um, applying for grants or having like having any sort of like complications with the government. um, The reason why they do it because it became their focus. So like revitalizing like the language again is the like the Kodiakalutics community way of like regaining its power like after years of assimilation and colonization. Um, it has become like an integral part of like the community's life because it has a connection to their identity. Uh, to the community, language is a powerful symbol of their past. So the Lutic language is like their heritage and ancestral artifact, I like to put that there, that has been passed down for generations because a lot of the languages that are taught is through oral like learning and teaching 
So all aspects of life, such as culture and spirituality, are experienced through language. So traditions, ceremonies, and prayers are spoken in Lutic. The stories and messages that are retold in Lutic are a part of the community's history and like what it is to be indigenous. So like for example, we read like in some of the chapters in Braiding Sweetgrass, um, <laughs> the the author mentioned how there's a lot of stories and messages that are spo- spoken in the native language and that needs to be preserved. It's something that is so important to the person, like to the group's identity because if it's lost, the story and the spirituality of it will be gone. Mm-hmm. So like we, so without the language, like the history of who they are would be forgotten. So it's most likely, it gives like, it gives in a sense the erasure of history so you know it like even though like a language preserves their like the culture and history of a group it advocates for linguistic diversity with what we mentioned with globalization and how english is such a like one of the biggest languages spoken across the globe um it if we just if we continue to only just speak english that would like limit a lot of people to not speak their native tongue which results to people losing their identity or losing their culture and their history and their knowledge of what it is of like their background so really just standardizing the world yeah you know just be like okay one shape fits all one language fits all Mm. should i read a quote from braiding sweetgrass yeah let okay. us hear it, Melissa. For everyone who doesn't know what braiding sweetgrass is, first of all, learn about what it is. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's this podcast is not sponsored. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this podcast should be sponsored. Well, no. Free. Oh, God. <laughs> Dropped the book. Um, Robin Wall Kimmer would be disgusting. Yeah, Robin Wall Kimmer <laughs> rules. Uh, she's great. Read her book. Read braiding sweetgrass. Anyway, this is a quote from her chapter on uh, learning the grammar of animacy where she talks about um, the native language of uh, the tribe that she's a part of. Um, the language is called Potawatomi. She says, Keep going. Nine, nine fluent speakers in the whole world. Our language, a millennia in the making, sits in those nine chairs. The, world, the words that praised creation told the old stories lulled my ancestors to sleep. Rest today in the tongue of nine very mortal men and women. Mic drop. Mic drop. That was powerful. Mm. I felt that in my bones. I feel like it really my like sums up like a how many what did you say? Oscoxa. What? She's been very uh, obsessed with that bone for some reason. It's a good bone. Sorry. It's a good bone. But yeah, I feel like it really well sums up, like, A, the pressure, right, like we were talking about earlier, of how much rests on the people who are the last people who speak a language, and also, like, the importance, you know, like, this is the language that has been spoken for millennia to people. It's how stories have been shared. It's how information has been shared. It's a history of the people. Yeah. yeah. I mean, like, it's how you say I love yeah. you and things like that. I mean, it's just, like, not fair that these, like, for example, like, in the book, like, nine people spoke this language. And they're responsible to preserving that. It's not fair to them because 
they they it's like not their responsibility in a sense because with like globalization assimilation and any sort of erasure like that took away a lot of their identity also like the language itself so it's a heavy burden yeah it's a heavy burden it's a huge responsibility especially like if you are so passionate in trying to preserve it keep it alive but there's very little people who want to help you that's why i think it's like really amazing like i remember just kind of being yeah just impressed when i was reading uh, your article the first time in your essay because i just found it really amazing that an entire community you know identified this as a crisis decided it was something they collectively needed to act on and support and then on top of that designed an actual effective plan that preserved language in like a range of different forms you know they had the the text the sounds uh, like the recorded you know dialogue and words they had curricula for it in schools and you know of course in the living descendants who were then serving as teachers so i think it was just a really um an effort on a community scale that i don't think i've really heard of or seen before because usually with like language planning it would be the government actually trying to make this the official language so for example there's i think a language in a place in mexico where the government was involved in promoting this specific language to be the national language and so they also went through the process of language planning where they tried to implement it into the curriculum um try to like create like textbooks and like tried to incorporate that in social media as well Mm. and that in itself made it more prominent the language itself the indigenous language to be more spoken than the other languages but that is because there's a bigger population yeah and then the government decides it's worth preserving worth funding yeah yeah i can also see that in new zealand can't you um with maori yeah so they have they have english maori and um New Zealand sign language as like official like state slash country languages and I think it is kind of important when um, governments kind of take up that effort if we can have like government support because then it would be fine to have to like go somewhere like in a state building or in a government building and expect everyone who's working there to be able to talk to you no matter what your language but, is. Yeah, and then again, to, to Naomi's point, that's because New Zealand has a you know very sizable Maori yeah. population. And I think it just, um, this is why it makes it all the more impressive that the community here in Alaska, you know, banded together to, you know, put this together. Yeah, I think that like within itself, I think in the, in Kodiak, there's like a thousand people in that peninsula. That, that's the population oh and so that is such a small amount of people that are so dedicated to at least try to keep this language alive even though there's we know for a fact how the American government is they don't really care about indigenous people but in a sense like the fact that they're going against like they're going out of their like go, making so many so much effort to use their own resources and their own time to do this is very commendable honestly Mm -hmm. and like you know that makes it makes you think about like language activism itself like not just Kodiak Lutic like is one of the endangered languages that is kind of concerned that we need to promote and like spread awareness for but there's other languages that are also endangered as well um and it results to like having at least one surviving speaker left before it becomes extinct so like it makes me 
want to ask a question for you guys is like how can we be able to like help like i know that it's such a high, it's like such a loaded question because with what we mentioned about like having government um involved and also having community like we we as like you know people who are very passionate with anthropology and also want to imp- like make indigenous like indigenous people like more prominent in the in like respected <laughs> like respected yeah. and honor them as well like how could we do that as a student who as students oh that's oh, a good I question think, yeah or as an individual as well well can i go from a, like a broader perspective yeah no. um i have a <laughs> i have a really uh it's gonna sound like a tangent but um an interesting case study um so yeah, so there's this book about this animal that's found in Laos and Vietnam, and I, I won't get into all that, but basically <laughs> the author um, spent time talking about like the indigenous peoples in that region and the fact that they speak like a bunch of languages that aren't even like um, officially documented. You know, they don't have proper names, they don't have like dictionaries, they're not recorded. Um, and a lot of these groups, are, sorry, a lot of these languages are only spoken in very small groups and, you know, uh, people that are live, you know, in very remote areas are um, very widely distributed and in I think it's Laos more so than Vietnam but there's a big issue with like forced assimilation into um, their cultural ideas of modernity so you know they're they're, they're really ashamed of um, or I should say what's what's a good word to describe them the the average person in Laos um, like a middle-class person apparently they're kind of ashamed of the fact that they're indigenous peoples still living in their forests um, so they have this kind of cultural, cultural aversion to the idea of indigenous peoples and indigenous lifeways, and so they kind of force them to live in, you know, quote unquote, more developed areas, or you know, um, adhere to these cultural guidelines. And in that process, these they're kind of driving these languages that most people don't even know about um, to extinction. So I think to answer your question, I think, um, and it's not something really that students or individuals can do, but I think governments especially in countries where there are high indigenous populations, I think they need to give indigenous peoples sort of their, their space to live, live organically, you know, live as they are, um, so that they can maintain their ties to their, you know, cultural identities. And, you know, we won't risk, you know, sure, they can, they can learn whatever language is becoming the predominant language of that specific country but um you know as long as they have the space or the ability to kind of return to you know ancestral homelands or or continue their ancestral practices i think that's that's kind of the way you avoid um, having so many languages at risk of going extinct um building off of what daniel said just talking about like the industrialization and just the push for modernity in most of these countries that are directly influenced by um countries such as the United States, France, and just genuinely France because Cambodia and Laos. But uh, (laughs) so just talking about those things and bringing them to our attention is just if you're going to push people out of their environment, out of their villages, out of their, like Daniel said, like remote locations that aren't really connected, they have different languages, different dialects of each language between each village even. So even that, once you push people towards cities, towards factories, and try to like um, mass produce and commodify labor, that's when you start losing not just like 
your language but just your cultural identity you become like a, a wage laborer <laughs> capitalism <laughs> marxism um fun stuff <laughs> but really like an example of this would be the green revolution and especially in indonesia when they started moving away from the way they traditionally farmed rice it really just you took away not only like a tradition and heritage but really like systems of towns that participated with each other uh, communicated with each other made sure that like hey i have enough water you have enough water we all have enough water to keep sustaining ourselves and then you move away from that um system and you put in place stuff like high yielding rice varieties that really all they're doing um they're they're less nutritious they cannot be replanted they're not sustainable they're also just the whole point of them is to be able to have more than enough rice to feed the country and also to import and that like that factor of like international trade that's another thing that pushes people out of their um communities and like alienates them and you know like we said standardize people and standardize how we farm um and actually like naomi you can talk more about how people start losing their language i mean it's just like it's sad because they're it's not like they're they have to do it in order to survive so it's either you're going to survive or you're going to lose your language that you're where you grew up in so with like the mentioning of like the green revolution itself like that a lot of people are moving away from their environment and their native land and going to cities that results to a lot of the population decreasing which results to the language not being spoken as much to a lot of um and the thing is like the thing is it might also result to people coming back and teaching a different language that might be the standard language to that so in a sense it's like with the idea of industrialization like it became a component to a lot of like and like a lot of the languages becoming endangered because of how we um isolate these groups of people and how we don't really leave them alone and let them foster their culture such as language history etc yeah and if you want to learn more about the green revolution take anthropology 101 with professor halday <laughs> shameless plug and let me pull up um the other po- i'm gonna mention also professor giblin's food for thought class which is an 233 233 yeah where we talk about the green revolution as well and while we're at it that case study i mentioned from Laos, vietnam um i would use that i would talk about that in my perusal comments all the time while i was in an 103 so that's dirt artifacts and ideas so also take that class also with professor giblin Melissa, shout out the linguistics <laughs> class. Also, that creature is the Sela. Oh. And Daniel's oh. a big fanboy. <laughs> we, we knew he was going to bring it up. He had to. <laughs> he had so the to book Lima. I mentioned is called <laughs> The Last Unicorn by William Devise. It's about the Sela, this really cool animal that you should totally read about from Laos and Vietnam. Um, that, and that's we're all out I, of time. That's all I got for the plug. <laughs> <laughs> but realistically, do please, like, if you are interested in these conversations and these topics, do uh, take these anthro classes naomi do you have an i do oh yeah, yeah why'd you, you get into this work in the first it? place yeah tell us I more know. okay so i chose to take this linguistics classes by professor paddock it is an215 
um, intro to language studies. Ooh. But the thing was, ah. the class that I took for the it was the very first linguistics class since the entire like every in the entire Quinnipiac history linguistics wow. class. Not young, <laughs> that's surprising. I know. That's so the thing recent. is, this is the first ever linguistics class that has been like approved, and like I and I was the test subject. <laughs> so <laughs> you were the rat. I was the rat. A wonderful guinea pig. But um, I think the class is very important to make you realize how, like, you, you know, the, a lot of the complexities of learning a language and that is not easy. So, like, we do mention in the class about endangered languages. And so that made me inspired to, like, write a paper about this because a lot of things is, like, I have personal relation to, like, a lot of language, like, loss because that took away some of my identity and some of my like history of like my knowledge as being Filipino, like not being able to learn Tagalog or learning my um, native tongue that resulted in me to feel at least somewhat distant to my identity as a per- like as me as a person and then my ethnicity and my culture as a Filipino. So in that sense that strive that motivated me to mo- talk about endangered languages or talking about how it's important to um, foster uh, language like diversity because if we just globalize just one language then it, it just loses a lot of it takes away so many things that I don't know how to express it it, it makes well, me it's like throwing white paint on like a like, like in a, a beautiful ca- painting. Being a beautiful yeah. painting it's just like there's so much that we could learn from but we need to understand that like standard like globalization is a big problem yeah and it's like when you when you talk about that and another thing is like even if you don't have and like a personal connection with language loss just think about it this way the loss of language is basically erasure at this point like Mm -hmm. language is the essence of who we are as human beings because it's where we embed our culture it's all in there in black and white and so like just to understand, better understand, like, even your heritage and your um, traditions and your culture, it's really important to, like, dig deep and acknowledge that even if your language is not the one that's dying, it's still important to learn about those languages that are because you just want to be able to better understand the world from that perspective, um, from a perspective of someone who doesn't have access um, as many of us like like a lot of us that do and uh, actually if you don't mind I want to go back to your question about what we can do as Q students and I think this is important because really what I wanted to say is that you have to be able to change your own thoughts about something and be like huh maybe I should learn about this maybe it is important for me to learn about this and others lived experiences other than my own because it gives you a different dimension and different perspective of understanding because if you can't understand people other than the people who look and talk like you I feel like that doesn't make you a well-rounded person and I'm not I don't mean to attack people I'm just saying no you're you're so true <laughs> it's like it's better to understand the world with different perspectives that's what I'm trying to say yeah, you can understand the world with well I mean you can but through your very own limited yeah, you can understand that's a the full very complexity boring of way it. of looking at it. Like back to the painting, like <laughs> thought. How about it's that, like, that episode of Fairly Ad, the Fairly Odd Parents, where everyone's little gray blobs? Yeah, you guys remember it, that? Yeah, I'm a gray no. blob. 
<laughs> you are right now. You, I am. But you look pretty. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Keep so that in You were saying, Farrah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh sorry. Um, I, yeah, what I was trying to say is, like, first we have to, us as students, um, just understand the, the importance of language mm-hmm. and how it affects our lives, really, every day, even if we don't really notice like the way you talk to your friends even if it's like in English is different how you talk to your parents how you talk to your grandparents and just even that is such a small difference but it is different and imagine that in a different language and there are thousands upon thousands of languages not even the ones that are dying like we just have so many languages I think within a country you could have more than like 4,000 languages Mm -hmm. on different dialects and it's just people are different and that's what's really beautiful about us i mean there's one thing that i was like thinking about i mean like linguistics itself is only taught in like a classroom setting or like language departments like we have classes for it in college but we're not Mm. really taught about it in an elementary school or like when you're in high school so it feels like as if like teaching it when we're like college students now it like it doesn't 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 it feel too late yeah. on like what we should do like that's no, what I agree I think we should we should be teaching this earlier and as a, a future teacher myself and Melissa I know you can talk on that too mm-hmm. I feel like it's important to be able to um, bring these concepts that I'm learning right now in college and not like dumb it down but adjust be, it yeah. yeah adjust it or like deconstruct it for like smaller generations because I mean kids are learning sign language in schools and a lot of people who I meet and like they'll try like I'll talk to them about sign language they'll be like oh I learned that in like elementary school I'm like that's awesome and they're like I only know how to spell my name I'm like that's still pretty cool like it's just you retain something that was different and you don't use that a lot but you know like the basics of that so if we can have like in a history class especially when you start talking about quote-unquote ancient civilizations that still exist (laughs) and alive today you can just be like hey this is the language they speak and this is how their language is different and like i think um dr giblin actually does that in one of uh in anthropology 103 where she just brings um there's an exercise of mayan hieroglyphics that you can write your name in Mm -hmm. and it's just a different perspective of how to view the culture you're studying and how to view um things from their perspective and how they wrote things and it just really gives you like a better understanding of what you're learning because it's not just in black and white and history especially is like super super complicated so when you're studying something I feel like it'd be good to not I mean I'm sorry it'd be good to learn every aspect of that culture rather than just the history of a quote-unquote dying or ancient cultures i mean yeah i mean like from history books they just go they just glance over it they do they don't they don't go into detail they don't mention important things that happen like like if you are talking about the colonization of the mayans they don't really go into depth on what happened to them i mean they're not gone yeah but there's a preconceived notion that they are gone i mean not even to go so far as the mayans people think that like Native Americans are gone. Are gone. Like when they think of like the other day, I found a book in the bookstore. It's called The Last of the Mohegans, and I'm like, 
girl. That that was written when like eighteen something. Yeah. It was it was really like eighteen twenties. I think 1860s? so. It was like eighteen hundreds. Yeah, somewhere in there. But it was like, uh, I continued reading about it after I went home that night, and it was like, fully a romanticization of native culture and how how like how it's basically dwindling and erasing like it's just lost to history it's like no native people still exist the mohegans still exist like you know 1826, they're still by the way and they were definitely around at the time <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah she I got it like right people talk a lot about like they like oh like native ways of living and languages and things like that are just like disappearing like mm-hmm. it's like a passive process but yeah. there are people living like you were telling us about Naomi, like people who are fighting to preserve their language and their ways of living and things like that. It's not like a passive process of just disappearing. People are still fighting to revitalize their language and culture and things like that. Speaking of native resistance, I wanted to um, just touch upon that for a little. I think it's really important to, like as Melissa said, um, to think about how native people aren't really just going down quietly they're like oh no our language is dying what can we do they're not like it's not passive as melissa said it's more of like they're screaming and shouting and kicking and fighting everyone but it's like really no one is hearing them out there's no coverage on it there is no there's no um like like naomi uh has brought up the fact that native people aren't like really given the chance to band together as a community (laughs) So it's important to just think about like how to help Native communities in banding together as like a community, even like we have that here at QU with the Indigenous Student Union and the events that they host here, just like showing up, being there, um, advocating for it. Because like we said, Native people aren't gone. They're not, their Native languages aren't lost. They're just not given the platform or the time of day to really talk about these issues that they um, are trying to advocate for and revitalize their languages. So it really is just like the first step is to take a step back and see where you can be most helpful and where like even like your voice, a body, like showing up, being there and supporting people is what really is important here. So, Daniel, as an ISU um, member, what can you tell us about where we can show up and voice our support and be there? Well, if you want to hear these topics talked about from, you know, Native perspectives, um, we've got a couple events. I think, you know, hopefully, I believe this will come out in time. Um, But on Friday, April 14th, from 2 to 4 p.m., we're going to have a blanket exercise with the Agamot Educational Initiative. We're going to get an Indigenous retelling of what we know as, quote-unquote, American history. Um, so it'll be really exciting. And uh, the day before that, uh, Judy Dow of Gedakina, or Gadakina, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Um, That'd be embarrassing. Yeah, I think it's Gadakina. But, um, I'll trust you. She'll be coming to campus. She'll also be at the Blanket Exercise. But she'll be coming to campus to speak to uh, Professor Giblin and Professor Haldane's classes about, uh, Naomi, what you talking about again? Yeah, Naomi, tell us about your... Classes. I'm taking Professor Gilblin's food class, and so we have the joint class with Professor Haldane. And most of the time in the joint class, we learn about sustainability and how that relates to indigenous traditions. So I think that's very important to come and definitely listen and watch out for. Yeah, so uh, reconnecting with cultural identities, though, 
communities banding together to affect cultural change. Mm, where have I heard this before? Oh, yeah, that's right. I think it sounds like the next program we're going to have where I talk about uh, the name Quinnipiac University and what our having it here at this college means for like our moral and ethical obligations about the Quinnipiac people. So, um, yeah, probably want to check into that. Oh, that sounds interesting. Yes, it does. Mm-hmm. Yes, it is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Thank you, yeah, Daniel, yeah. for... You have to pretend it sounds interesting, but okay. It does! <laughs> oh, my <laughs> God. We're just trying to be nice here. Oh, my gosh. Spoiler alert, we've already listened to it, and we already know it was well, interesting. Well, at, at least two of us have. <laughs> uh, thank you, Daniel, for uh, giving us some... ISU uh, events that are coming in the month of April. Um, so, and also for everyone who is listening, thank you so much for uh, learning about the revitalization of languages, specifically the Kodiak Alutic. Um, I hope that um, from listening to this, you could um, understand more about endangered languages and what we could do to save them. Yeah, and thank you to our host, Naomi, for doing such great research and leading such a fantastic conversation. I was so nervy. But you were, you did amazing. And shout out to Daniel. Today is March 31st, and it's his birthday. B-Day boy. Thank you. <laughs> Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Daniel. Galbit. <laughs> <laughs> Full government name. <laughs> Name it was it name and address withheld. Happy birthday! The first time I met you, you started explaining how you were like, oh, I say my last name wrong. Galvin. From this day forward, I'm gonna say my name right. Wow, the deep dive. (laughs) Coolby. That was the first time we ever met. Are we leaving this in? (laughs) (laughs) Happy birthday, (laughs) Dino.